Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley. I'm joined as always by Corey McCartney and we are here in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game to talk about the week that was for Major League Baseball and more specifically for the Atlanta Braves. It did not end on a great note on Sunday. We're going to get all into Atlanta's loss to the Padres in extra innings. We're also going to take a look back at everything that has transpired throughout this week as the Braves wrapped up a long homestand and did so in a bit of a disappointing fashion when it felt like they might be able to go out on the road on a high note with another win against another very competitive team. Was not to be on Sunday. Again, we'll get into all of that before we do, though, I want to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find me on all my social media accounts that way. At Corey J. McCartney is where you can find Corey. And make sure you're following the station at 92.9 The Game as well. So, Corey, welcome back. We are kind of in the lonely position of neutral if, if we're the Atlanta Braves because it felt like they had a chance to take a series from the Padres on Sunday, and it slipped through their fingers in a sloppy day where another couple of errors open the door for a good team to have extra outs, and they beat the Brazen extras. Yeah, it kind of feels like Paul Abdul, right? You take two steps forward and two steps back. I mean, it just feels like they just can't get any. Every time we think, okay, that's the thing. That's the thing that's right. going to get this team going. The next day, it's just, it, I mean, there's just no momentum built, and I think that maybe is the most frustrating thing. It has to be. Uh, the most frustrating thing for Braves country right now watching this team in action. Yeah, it certainly does because I feel like there are so many missed opportunities and there are a lot of other things you can point to as to maybe why the Braves haven't been able to play up to their lofty standards, up to the expectation that a fan base should no doubt have after you win a World Series, but there have been some changes in personnel. There's also been one very notable missing piece to this club for most of the season, and once again, the Braves find themselves without Ronald Acuna Jr. for a period of time. Nothing like what they've dealt with before, but still, this is something that sets the club back a bit, and I think we saw that on Sunday, just not having that kind of dynamic player in a game that was very close, clearly, in order to get into extra innings. The wheels kind of fell off in the 11th there, but you just feel like this is a guy who's a difference maker, and when the Braves don't have him, it makes a difference in the other direction. It does, and I I mean, I think Travis Demerit, to his credit, has been a reasonable facsimile of Ronald Acuna Jr. He's just... The, athlete, the explosiveness is, you know, the, the fear that he puts into a team atop that lineup mm-hmm. and coming into a key situation in a game. It's just not the same as it is with Demerit from what you have with Ronald Acuna Jr. And, no. you know, we can get into this now if you want, but I thought the, the comments from uh, manager Brian Snicker after the game were interesting because the MRI on Acuna's uh, groin came back clean. There's, there's nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of being cautious with things right now with him. But I found the conversation interesting because a lot of the questions went down the line of, okay, does this guy need to let up a little bit? And I, I think that becomes a little bit of a frustrating situation when you watch a guy, which you know, Snicker said he basically plays with his hair on fire. But that's the endearing thing of Ronald Cunha Jr.'s game, right? One of the many. Yeah, and I hate that baseball is the only sport where we have these conversations where we're saying, okay, 
you know, over time, this guy's got to figure out how to pick his spots, and he's got to know when to use his speed, and he's got to know when to press the issue. I, I just hate that we have that conversation. It seems like, you know, we could go back to when we were kids, guys like, you know, Bo Jackson, Eric Davis, Ken Griffey Jr., guys who had extreme mm-hmm. athleticism, and then we watch, you know, baseball time. You know, the, we talk about, you know, father time catching up with people. Baseball father time has a much faster chance of getting guys than, you know, their overall career. And it just, I hate that we're already having these conversations about Acuna. Yeah. And I don't really feel like those conversations are warranted in terms of asking him to stop being who he is, because that is what makes him a dynamic player. That's what makes him one of, I would say the handful of the very best players in all of baseball right now. And one of the reasons why you can feel optimistic every time that the Atlanta Braves take the field. If you've got him out there, I want him playing up to his capabilities and doing things as far as I'm concerned, in the way that he sees fit instinctually. I don't want to start trying to change the wiring of somebody. Now, there are a couple of little things like going across first base and turning to see the call from the umpire that, has, that will scare me, but that not necessarily ask him to change the way he plays. He runs hard. He does the things that he needs to do. I know there have been some nitpicking and different things and, and different stuff over the years that, as far as I'm concerned, is is dead and buried. I mean, that's just not something that they're concentrating on right now, but you know, I know they want to be cautious with him, and I do think caution is important with the workload of bringing a guy who's sitting for nine, ten months without playing Major League Baseball every game and being concerned that you'll overcompensate for something. But, no, I don't agree with any conversation around asking him to change the type of player or the style of play that he has. I think that he is who he is because of the way that he's wired and because of his next-level talent. If you start tinkering with that kind of thing, you may all of a sudden get a guy who – then you'll have the argument on the other side. Well, well, he's just too cautious. He doesn't play with enough urgency. He doesn't do this. Like, you're going to hear it from either side. So if I'm Ronald Acuna Jr., not that he's sitting here listening to me tell him career advice, but be who you are, play how you play, and the results are going to speak for themselves, and those results are going to make the Atlanta Braves a better baseball team. He has a radio, so who knows? No, he does. he's dialed into it right now. Maybe he's got a meter. You know, know. you never know. The thing with him, though, is we love the passion – when it's him thumping his chest after he hits this home run. 100%. We love the passion yep. when he's, you know, doing the LeBron James silencer after a home run, but we question the passion when it ends up with a mild groin strain that has him missing games. And that's not something that he suffered in any of the more exuberant aspects of his game. Like he didn't hurt himself doing a home run, you know, watching a home run fly over the wall. He hurt himself playing all out, trying to make plays, running hard on the bases, those kinds of things. I mean, I guess you want to be judicious about it just from a common sense perspective, but beyond that, I just don't know how much more you can ask out of him. But it is an interesting conversation, one that I wish that we could just not have when it comes to Ronald <laughs> yeah. because of past chapters in this book. But look, people tune in to see players like this. People tune in to see a baseball team winning games, and having Ronald Acuna Jr. back out there playing up to his capabilities gives the Braves a chance to do both of those things, to win games and also to entertain the fans, which I'm sure is something that Atlanta would very much like to do. They'd also like to entertain themselves with a few wins, and those were a little harder to come by this weekend. A couple of games that got away from him. Uh, first loss on Friday night, uh, but there was a moment in that game, Dansby Swanson's go-ahead home run, where you started to feel like hey, maybe the DNA of this club over the last few years is starting to, to show through. That wasn't to be on Friday, but on Saturday, what do teams do, good teams do, when they do suffer a loss that is you know, kind of a, one of them, one that could kind of get you off track? They bounced back in a big way. They did that on Saturday, even in a game where it seemed like they were going to melt down a second time and maybe let a winnable game go the way of the opposition. But the Braves were able to rally and get their four runs and grab a big-time victory. Then on Sunday, we saw a game that I feel like with Kyle Wright pitching well, 
was very winnable, but a couple of errors and some unearned runs gave the San Diego Padres the opportunity to grab a victory in extra innings and even in extras the Braves weren't able to execute in the 10th with a chance to walk off. So it was a really frustrating day and a frustrating end to a series that might very well be categorized as very frustrating for Braves fans. Okay, so so a couple of things here. You started off talking about Dansby Swanson. Uh, Obviously, you know, you you watched him really struggle early in the season. Before April 22nd, he was hitting 143 with a 433 OPS. Um, He has been a top 30 player across all of baseball since then. A 903 OPS. Today, by the way, he got his first hit on a 3-0 count, which was a home run over left center field fence. All his previous 3-0 counts, we hit 70 of them. He walked. He's never gotten out. Uh, in a 3-0 count, you know, certainly what you've gotten out of him, you want a spark plug, an, an emotional spark plug. Dansby Swanson has those capabilities. Mm-hmm. And in terms of timely hitting, I mean, you go back to Orlando Arcia's uh, walk-off on Wednesday. Before that, the Braves were last in the majors in OPS in high-leverage situations. They're still way down there, but they're yeah. now top 10 in the month of May. And a large part of that's been what we've seen out of them these past few days. I mean, you, you think about you know just the ability, what they did against the Padres on Saturday – you know, they. Uh, then you look at today. Obviously, they fail to get a hit with runners in scoring position. It's the eighth time that's happened. They just haven't been able to consistently do it. I mean, I think that seems to be. You know, we mentioned that from the get go. The conversation with this team is they keep making these strides where you think, okay, they're there finally here. They're here. Yeah. They're here. And then we just watch it go. And and I don't know if it's because you know I I make that call back to Dansby Swanson as a as a guy that can be that emotional fire starter for them. You know, they had that with Jock Peterson last year. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, certainly, you know, Eddie Rosario's situation is not anywhere. You know, it's, it's not obviously his fault that he's sitting out having, you know, had eye surgery. And I'm not saying that they signed the wrong, the wrong outfielder, but, you know, just having that guy that you know is going to go in there and say, this is how we get things done. And I, you know, I think they need somebody to step up and be that. Obviously, we're not, you know, watching, we only, we have limited time in the clubhouse that we're allowed in there, and certainly we're not in there and, piv- and uh, privy to when they're no, having and these no conversations. One is, by the way. Uh, but certainly you, you need to see somebody light a fire underneath this team, and it seems to be the one aspect that they just can't get over right now. Yeah, and some of this, you know, I'm not going to dismiss it altogether. It's not easily seen from the outside, to, yep. to go to your point. I mean, and it's not always like, hey, we got to go out and get somebody else in order to find a way to spark the team. And I feel like last year or, or the 2021 version of the Braves, I mean, that set a very unrealistic expectation for how things can go from when it's not going your way to how it can end up when it does go your way. And you love that it happened and you love that that's something that this club can lean on, that experience to hopefully get them through times like this. But there has just been a, a level of just underperformance for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to pin it all on, you know, you don't have a, a leader to go out there and tell you how to play. You shouldn't be, have to be told how to play at this level, and that's just one of the other things I look at with this. But with Dansby Swanson, more to the point of, of that whole conversation, he has been the top defender in all of baseball. If you look at the advanced metrics and fan graphs with um, outs above average, I mean, he is not just a shortstop, but – Across the board, one of the best defenders, if not the best defender in baseball, and all of a sudden he started, as you said, hitting at a pretty good rate. And he always seems to find a way throughout the season to come up with these hits in big situations for the Braves. Hopefully that'll be something that continues. Hopefully it's something that we see more of, but the Braves certainly needed him to get on track so that they could start to get themselves on track altogether. 
Um, looking at this lineup, it's kind of been a mixed bag all season. There's lots of peaks and valleys. There's lots of different hitters that we can point to with this, but I think it just comes down to this. Guys are going to have to start producing closer to the levels that they're accustomed to in their careers and that they're expected to perform this year. We've seen a lot of long slumps. Marcelo Zuna broke out of one in a big-time way on Saturday with a game-tying two-run homer, but Austin Riley had been in a slump. He did get three hits on Saturday, did not have a great day on Sunday, however. You've had Matt Olson not playing anywhere close to, I think, the player that overall he has been in Oakland. He had a couple of hot weeks at the start of the year, but now troubles with runners in scoring position. And you can also point to Dansby for the first couple of three weeks. And you can look at Adam Duvall, who's still trying to get things going. When you've got that many guys trying to figure it out at the plate and you're minus Ronald Acuna Jr., I'm not sure offensively what the answers are for the manager because he can't just hit shuffle and just throw guys out there or draw names out of a hat. I don't know that they've gotten to that level of desperation yet. It feels really frustrating when you think about the quality of players that this team largely has batting two through five. When you think about, you mentioned Matt Olson, a guy who's a you know multi-time All-Star Gold Glove Award winner. Austin Riley, who last year you know finished in the top ten in MVP voting. Marcelo Zuna, who were two years removed from him being the National League leader in home runs and RBIs, and then. You know, Ozzie Albies, who most people consider to be one of the top yeah, two or three second too. basemen in all of baseball. You know, and they go two for, seven, uh, two for 17 on Sunday uh, as a group. You know, you think about, you know, what they were able to do on Saturday. They go two through five uh, as four hits with two homers, a double, and five RBIs. It's like, okay, you get it done one day, and then the next day it's just, it's just not there. I mean, you go back to April 30th, and the middle of the order was hitting 148 with a 437 OPS. It's... As much as we want to peg everything on, okay, when Ronald Acuna Jr. gets back and mm-hmm. he's playing every day, this team's going to be lights out. But the other side of it is if those guys aren't hitting, what does it, what does it matter? I mean, unless he's going to go up there and hit a leadoff home run every day, th- these guys have got to find a way to produce. Well, I mean, he can hit all the leadoff home runs he wants to. That ultimately is only one run. And look, yep. I'll take him. I'll take every single <laughs> one of them that he wants to hit. But it, it is overall a group dynamic. And I think that there are a variety of things that may be at play here, including – you know, just the fact that across baseball, you look at the overall production. The Braves are not the only offense that's been really scuffling this year and trying to find its identity, but they have not looked anything like the club they've been the past couple of years. So they're going to have to hopefully figure that out sooner than later. They've got a very tough test waiting for them on the road right out of the chute as they have to go up and face the Milwaukee Brewers that we've already seen in the past week. The Braves did win a series against them, which that's a little momentum maybe to take on the road to, to face that club for the second time in less than a, what, 10-day span. However, it's a very tough pitching staff, and we've already seen that from the Milwaukee Club so far this year. we got a lot more Braves talk to get into here as we continue to focus on the week that was for the Atlanta Braves this week in Braves baseball, we like to call it. We'll continue that here on From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. To more from the Diamond Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is from the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. We're live from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue this week in Braves baseball. And what an up and down week it was, Corey. We hit some of the highs and some of the lows from the weekend series against the Padres, and really the way things have been trending for this club. Which, depending on how things are going. It's kind of like that old saying about the weather. If you don't like it, just wait 24 hours and (laughs) maybe it'll change. That seems to be the story of the 2022 Braves thus far. And hopefully we'll get a little more consistency in it of the good variety as we head out on the road or the Braves do. We're going to be right here in the studio talking about it. But 
It's a road trip that I think is going to be a test for them as they face the Milwaukee Brewers and then an improved Miami Marlins club that, look, they may not win the division. They may scuffle from time to time this year. In fact, I'm sure they will, but they're going to be a tougher road for any team in the National League East. They're not going to be the pushover that they might have been a year ago. Let's talk about some of the highlights, though, from this week and something that was really a sight for sore eyes. And, in fact, we got to see it twice in the past week, and that was the performance of Charlie Morton on Saturday, six innings of one-run ball and a season-high nine strikeouts. Corey, that backs up his Milwaukee start, five innings of shutout ball from him there, 14 strikeouts over his last 11 innings, only one run allowed over that stretch as well. That's a big-time development for Charlie Morton for the rotation and hopefully for the Braves as they look to find that consistency we've been talking about that has been so elusive. What we talked about with Morton when he was struggling was the lack of swing and misses. Uh, he had that's a season-high 15 whiffs uh, on 43 swings against the Padres the last time out, and that's you know it just hadn't been there for him. The whiff rate's now 19%. I mean, it was nearly 29% a year ago. Um, it hasn't been this low since 2015. He obviously has some catching up to do. Uh, in that department, but certainly, you know, the curveball is getting better, and you know whether or not that has anything to do with, you know, the inconsistencies of the of the baseball. Uh, you know, he's got a 34 percent whiff rate on that pitch now, much more like we're used to seeing out of him. Uh, just a, a massive development when you think about, you know, the fact that you know they they needed him, they've needed him to to help to stabilize things because you do, you know, we we've not always seen the best out of Ian Anderson. It's been, you know, we've seen it in spurts this season. He hasn't. I mean, he's had a couple really good outings, but they haven't always been dominant. Um, you know, strong outing from Kyle Wright, uh, obviously today. Max Freed's been, you know, every bit uh, in ace. But you know, they they need this version of Charlie Morton. And certainly, when you kind of have the, you know question marks about who makes up that fifth spot. I mean, mm-hmm. this is what they need out of him. And those that whiff rate for a guy who, you know, is such a high strikeout pitcher since he's redeveloped himself uh, over these past six years, it, it, massive and positive development for him. Yeah, and this is the guy that they went out and brought back knowing that he would be, no question, a guy that you can count on every fifth day. Now, you can't foresee that he's going to have a broken leg in the World Series, and you're not going to have him for that. But he was able to get himself back and ready to start this season. And I really felt like maybe that wasn't going to be something that was going to affect him, but clearly something was. I'm not going to put it all on the injury. Maybe the shortened spring training didn't exactly help out, and the oddity of not being able to train at your facility and work with your club throughout the process of coming back. All of those things are probably some portion of that pie. However, for Charlie Morton, I mean, he's a guy that works incredibly hard each and every start, I mean, he is somebody that pours through it and really comes up with a cerebral game plan. This is not just, well, I'm going to go out and throw my fastball as much as I can, and then I'm going to throw some curveballs, and I'll mix in a couple of other things. Even though that's his mix, even though that's what makes him successful, there is so much more to the mental side of Charlie Morton's game. But from the physical side, he was not getting the execution that he needed. But we have seen a sharp uptick in the swings and misses on his curveball in the past couple of starts. And that is the pitch I feel like will unlock the success for Charlie Morton again. He can't keep guys off the fastball if he doesn't have a secondary pitch that's expanding their strike zone, causing them to swing and miss, or simply giving them a reason to second-guess themselves at the plate. This is the mental side, but physically speaking, it's kind of trying to crack two codes at the same time, which cannot be easy, but that's what makes him such a good pitcher. And he was really struggling in first innings uh, through a lot of those uh, initial starts, too. And after he struggled against the Mets, you know, the conversations that he was having after that game, what he, he basically said, you know, he, he hated that he couldn't be a guy that they could count on. And I think more so than anything, he realizes that at this point in his career, 
You know, there's an expectation when Charlie Morton is in your rotation and what he's going to provide you every fifth day, and he wasn't doing that. I mean, he had a 403 uh, weighted on base average against in the month of April, and that has slipped to, to 240 uh, so far uh, early in May as, you know, he obviously has had some a couple of really strong back-to-back starts. And, you know, a lot of it, as we mentioned, it, it's all about, you know, how he's able to set up uh, that curveball, and that is, again, his, his most consistent and effective weapon. Uh, you have to really like the direction that he's headed in because, again, you know, if he's go, if this this Braves rotation only can go as far as you know those guys that you know what you're going to get from every time out, Max Fried and Charlie Morton are those guys that you know each and every time what you're going to get from them. Yeah, Charlie Morton went through a string of three consecutive starts beginning out in Los Angeles on April the 20th, in which he did not garner more than 10 swinging strikes in the game. That improved against Milwaukee, where he got 10 swinging strikes and then 14 total swinging strikes in his outing against the Padres on Saturday, eight of those against the curveball. That's the kind of trend. That's the kind of of breakdown that you want to see percentage-wise from Charlie. If you know it's going well, you know he's getting those swings and misses, and that's a season high, by the way, the 14 swinging strikes in his last start and eight on the curveball quite easily. I mean, he's had four starts in this season of his total of seven where he didn't have eight swinging strikes. So this makes a big difference when he's a swing and miss kind of guy, and that's exactly what he is. Let's talk about a couple of other pitchers who have been bright spots for the Braves. We saw Kenley Jansen come in and in an inning in which he got away from the Braves quite simply on Saturday to no fault of Kenley Jansen's. He got the ground ball for the double play. Austin Riley, though, unable to turn it that Saturday. That happened again on Sunday. Different inning, though. Different pitcher. Not such a great result by the end of the game either. But Kenley, you got to believe. I mean, he has been as good as you could have asked for. And when you do look at the Braves' bullpen coming into Sunday, only the Dodgers and Mets have a lower batting average against than the Braves, and only the Mets' bullpen has more Ks per nine than Atlanta's relievers, and the Braves' bullpen is leading Major League Baseball in Fangrass wins above replacement on the season. So this overall has been a good group. I know that things didn't go well in extra innings for the Braves today, but honestly, this is a game that shouldn't have even gotten to extra innings. Yeah, and I, you know, you think with Jansen, I mean, I don't know that how much you know this really plays into the a reliever, a, a closer's mindset. But in safe situations, uh, he's got a one one three ERA. In non-safe situations, he has a six seven five ERA. But in those situations that you're asking him to be Kenley Jansen, he is being fan, he's been fantastic. I mean, he's you know he has was it a twenty four game streak now that he's gone with converted saves, second yeah. only to Josh Hader. I mean, he's been you know exactly what you want him to be, and I think the fact that we're talking about this bullpen being so high up in terms of, of Fangraph War, despite the fact of what happened on Friday and Saturday with Will Smith on the mound, I mean, it certainly speaks to the the quality that they have and the depth that they have down there. Uh, that certainly, you can weather that kind of a performance and still be sitting in that perch uh, in terms of overall uh, bullpen play in the majors. Yeah, and on Saturday, I know that Will Smith giving up that home run, or excuse me, on Friday, giving up that home yeah. run. I mean, that's one, if you want to look at him and say he should have made a better pitch there, well, then, yeah, I guess you can say that. And the Padres said, put a couple of runners on base against him. He did give up the game there on Saturday, though. The defense was what really let the Braves down in that frame. Will Smith. May not have been lights out, striking out everybody, but you got to have guys making plays behind you, and that was just not happening. And that was a running theme over the weekend as well. When we talk about the value overall, I mean, if you want to talk about wins above replacement, which I don't know that we want to devote our whole show to, but while we're here, we might as well do it for A.J. Minter, who has been, I think, the Braves' most valuable reliever thus far this season, which if you watched him pitch in October, he's always shown you that he can do it, and he has managed to – kind of drag his career out of where it could have stalled out very easily, where he was being demoted back to Gwinnett. And that was not that long ago 
to become one of the Braves' best relievers in the times they need him most. And right now, they've asked a lot about him. He pitched all three games against the Padres and was able to provide exactly the relief the Braves needed in that. And now he is sitting on – he had a .7 Fangrass war coming into the game. He threw another scoreless inning, picked up another strikeout. 172 ERA for him, 23 punchouts in 15 and two-thirds innings. He has more strikeouts than Ian Anderson in about half the frames. If you want to know just how dominant AJ Minter's been, if you look on AJ Minter's Statcast page, and you know certainly it, it goes through, you know this kind of thermostat, if you will, that if it's if a guy's numbers are blue, it's that's not good. Right. If it's if it's if it's you know fire engine red, that guy's locked in. And all the things that matter on AJ Minter's Statcast page right now are fire engine red, and those mm-hmm. things you talk about, you know, limiting hard hit rate and limiting you know, exit velocity and the, the walk rate, the K rate, all that stuff that you want to see in fire engine red from A.J. Minter is absolutely there. And, you know, this is the longest tenured Braves pitcher. Dansby yep. Swanson is the only guy on this roster that's been in Atlanta longer than he has. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, a year ago was a major part of that night shift group. Um, you know, I, I remember having conversations with him, you know, when he was kind of going back through that yo-yo process uh, with Gwinnett, and you know, he really had talked about trying to develop because every, you know, obviously he's a, he's a guy who throws a lot of four seams, a lot of cutters, but he's really worked on trying to develop that changeup. And guys have yet to get a hit against him this season on that changeup. It's been a developing pitch from yeah. him over the past few seasons, and I think now to be so effective with it, he last year it was they were hitting 324 on that pitch. Mm-hmm. He's just been, and it, it's all you know, for him, it's much like Charlie Morton. It's all about can you set things up via that that, that fastball and the cutter, yep. you know, to be able to use that secondary stuff, and for him to be able to be so effective with that cutter that that changeup, you know, just looks that much more effective and devastating. Uh, that's a big development for him, mm-hmm. and I think it just speaks to a guy we've talked about for years that he had that closer mentality, that he had that makeup for it. I mean, you know, guys who remember seeing Craig Kimbrell on that top of that mound, perched over with his his arm dangling to the side. That that's a that's what AJ Mentor wants. He wants to be in that role, and I think to see him be this effective at this point after the success he had last postseason, this is this is a big big development. No, it definitely is. And when I talked about that yo-yo process or that hey, go back to Gwinnett and figure it out, keep in mind that happened last summer. I mean, yeah. he's been to Gwinnett recently. And it's he, happened a bunch of times, like the last three seasons. Yeah, it, it has. Well, the most recent one that it has happened was 2021. He did get demoted back in 2019 as well, and I think that part of that was. Uh, he got injured in spring training in some minor car accident, and then they had him start the year in Gwinnett. He wasn't there for very long. Then he had to go back and kind of figure some stuff out. But long story short, I mean, this is a guy who's been more or less a a featured piece of the Braves' bullpen. He closed for a minute, but now he's not doing so much closing. But, man, he is part of that night shift, and that is a big reason why the Braves are successful. Uh, we also saw throughout this week, I think, the real – if you want another example of the maturation process of Kyle Wright, I think we got another one because – he got just an inning that just went sideways on him against the Boston Red Sox in his prior start to Sunday. He was able to pitch into the fifth inning despite the fact that he did give up six runs in a frame, including a grand slam home run to Rafael Devers on a pitch that, you know, you just sometimes there's some hitters, you just can't throw one there. And especially on the first pitch with the bases loaded, and that's what happened. But outside of that, I mean, he was able to cover some innings that I don't think he covers a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, any of his prior stints in the Braves rotation. It could have been worse. Or Brian Snitker might have simply said, I have seen enough, and I'm going to have to go get him out of this game, and I'm going to have to go to somebody else, and now we're burning through seven and a third innings out of our bullpen, and we're going to have to make a roster move tomorrow or the next day or the off day or the whatever it is. That didn't happen. And that may seem like a little thing, but I think it's a big thing because he reestablished himself in that start. 
And then he came out against the San Diego Padres on Sunday and fired a gym. This is the Kyle Wright that even when things kind of maybe go bad, because they're going to go bad three, four, five times, no matter who the starter is every year, no matter how good they are, he has found a way to work through the problem and continue to be the pitcher that he knows he can be, and that is a difference maker for the Braves. It is, and I think you know his comments after uh, that Red Sox outing were interesting because he said he's kind of he's kind of tired of talking about last year and you know what what he changed last year. Last, right. you know, he's put he's put last year to bed, and I think from that standpoint, we need to judge what we see from Kyle Wright now and going forward differently. You know, I think we've, you know, I've had the conversations with him about it. So have a lot of other guys about how he was able to, to kind of alter the, the arsenal and, and grow a little bit. But I, you know, what you're seeing out of him of late is really, as you mentioned, it's a maturation process. I mean, today he held the Padres without a hit through four and two thirds innings, which is the longest no hit bit of his career. That's a step, you know, and, and you think about, you know, trying to get through that outing against the Red Sox when things weren't necessarily going his way. Uh, these are all, you know, big pieces for him. You know, you think about, you know, the, the focus that we put on that 2017 draft that he was a part of. You know, you got Royce Lewis, Hunter Green, Mackenzie Gore, Brendan McKay, Kyle Wright, all those top five. Four of those guys are factoring majorly yep. into baseball in the, in the national baseball picture right now. Um, they're, he's living up to that place that he had in the draft, and we're seeing some really strong outings from him consistently. Yeah, and that consistency and these strong outings are one of the highlights for a Braves team that has seen some ups and downs here over the first five or six weeks of the season, still searching for a way to kind of put it all together, especially after a tough loss in extra innings to the Padres, which dropped the Braves to 16 and 19 on the season. They are, though, still six and a half games back in the National League East standings because the Mets also lost. We're going to talk a lot about what else is happening around the big leagues when we come back as we take that trip and size up both the National League and the American League division battles coming up. But we're going to get to our three up and three down, six of the biggest stories from MLB this week, right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you here in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And it is time for three up and three down. In total, six of the biggest stories across the world of baseball over this past week. And, Corey, let's jump into one that I think that uh, about a week ago, we weren't really sure how far it was going to go, but the Astros had themselves a winning streak, and that winning streak went on for a while. In fact, it reached 11 games, and then somebody was finally able to cool off the Braves' old World Series foe, and they have rocketed to the top of the standings as a result of this. That 11-game winning streak finally ended by the Nationals on Saturday. This is a club that lost Carlos Correa to free agency over the winter. There's definitely some unfinished business for Dusty Baker and for this team come October. Right now, the pitching has really been the strength of this club, and I think that that's underscored by Justin Verlander's return. At 39 years old and coming into his start on Sunday, he was already 4-1 and with an ERA of 1.55. He's flirting with a no-hitter just about every time out. 36 punch-outs, 6 walks, the controls there. After a long layoff, man, it doesn't seem like there's much rust on Justin Verlander. Not at all, and this Astros team is insane. I mean, you mentioned an 11-game win streak snapped at the hands of the Nationals. But they have the Red Sox and Rangers to come and just expect the good times with this team to keep rolling. They play one winning team, the Guardians, between now and June 17th. That's a span of 28 games. So you think an 11-game winning streak was good? These guys may be able to, to ratchet things up a little bit. And Jeremy Pena, Carlos Correa's replacement, 153 WRC+, plus, a 1-7 more. He's also homered six times playing premium defense. Yeah. 
Um, man, they, they've just they have filled that hole in their lineup uh, pretty succinctly with uh, Jeremy Pena. It's kind of like having Carlos Correa without having yeah. Carlos Correa because what else could he really be doing in that place of the guy who's taken that spot? But as you look at the Astros overall, I mean, it's, they're another club that the offense is not carrying them right now. I mean, the Astros as a club this season, at least coming into Sunday, were batting two twenty six on the year. In fact, I believe there's only one club, if I'm not mistaken, that's over 260 this season, where there may not be any clubs at 260. If you look at the overall one through 30 of the entirety of Major League Baseball, I mean, offense is down. We discussed that last week. I mean, you're talking about four runs per game on average, at least it was as of seven days ago. I don't think that's changed a whole lot in the past week, but I mean, this is a trend that even a club that goes on an 11 game winning streak is by and large being done on the strength of its pitching. And for the Astros, the pitching has just been next level. It has been, but they're also second in the majors in uh, offensive war. They're fourth in home runs. You know, in the, if you think that they're getting it done with pitching and not the offense producing, Wait till the offense completely comes together because that's, that's, what I'm that's how scary this team could be. And the West is a lot of fun. I mean, we'll get into that later between them and the Angels. Uh, you know, just a lot of a lot of fun matchups out there in that division. But um, it's it's a it's a scary thought that this team has been able to rattle off an 11 game winning streak when the offense isn't 100 percent clicking like you think it should be. Yeah, I mean, they spun five shutouts during their 11 game yeah. winning streak. I think that'll play more times than not. A couple of other. Two-run games, a one-run game here or there, but most mostly until they ran into 13 runs they got thumped for on May the 14th against the Nationals. They were pretty much rolling as a pitching staff. Now let's make our way over to the Bronx where we had some really interesting back and forth. The Yankees are playing some pretty good baseball, to say the least, but one guest manager was not thrilled about losing a game on a home run to the right field porch last set, last Sunday this is what Ranger skipper Chris Woodward had to say after Glaber Torres hit a walk-off home run in game one of a doubleheader. Small ballpark, that's a easy out <laughs> um, in 99% of ballparks. So, um, you know, the wind was, wasn't helping today, obviously, but, you know, just 3-1 count. Probably get a, you know, King is one guy that you put him back out there, you're like, okay, he's not going to give up a homer. Uh, just happened to hit it in a little league ballpark, you know, to right field. Well, let's clear up a little misconception here. Corey, the dimensions are friendly at Yankee Stadium. There's no debating that. But Torres' home run would have been gone in 26 of the 30 major league parks. So maybe that math doesn't check out. And Aaron Boone, in fact, was asked about his thoughts on Woodward's remarks and provided this. Between games, Chris Woodward said that Glaber's home run would have not been out of 99% of ballparks, and they called this a, a little league ballpark. Do you have any reaction to that? <laughs> not really. <laughs> Is math wrong? 99% is impossible. There's only 30 parks. So we got to get the percentages right. That's important. It's baseball. We're into the numbers, all those things. Maybe he's talking about the totality of all ballparks across America, but I think that, you know, a 369-foot home run is out of a lot of baseball parks over in right field, but be that as it may, 26 of the 30 big league parks, as I said, but in a season where it seems like more and more balls are dying on the warning track than ever before, it's great that we still have a couple of managers who can argue about the dimensions of a ballpark. Like any good comments, uh, it's led to a T-shirt. And our friends at RotoWare have a yes. T-shirt that says 161 Street Little League Ballpark. And yeah, I will say Chris <laughs> Woodward would know something about light hitting. Uh, he did hit, uh, just average just eight home runs across his 12-year Major League season, and he never, ever, ever hit a home run in Yankee Stadium. Well, a lot of the balls that he put in play might have been gone in Little League parks, though, and <laughs> that's maybe true. that's kind of the point. I'm not really sure, but the back and forth was a lot of fun. The Yankees, meanwhile, have been playing a little bit better baseball than the Texas Rangers this year, 
Yankees 25 and 9 as we sit here talking right now. Texas Rangers 13 and 19. And, and what's one more loss on a Glaber Torres walk off home run? Meanwhile, we're going to stay out west in the American League where the Angels have baseball's best hitter. Of course, you already knew that, but it's not Mike Trout. It's not even Shohei Otani. It is Taylor Ward. He owns an absurd 18.1 offensive runs above average and just over 100 plate appearances. That's fueled by eight homers, 23 runs knocked in, 22 runs scored, and nearly a 20% walk rate in his 25 games entering Sunday. All of that is good for a team-leading 2.3 Fangraphs war. That's just ahead of Trout, and it's ahead of Otani as well. So I don't know what we have here, Corey, when you look at it, because we're talking about a 28-year-old player who's had a time in the big leagues, more than a few times in the big leagues. He's playing out of his mind. His 439 batting average on balls in play is probably not sustainable all season long, but he has been one of the big surprises on a good Angels team. He has been, and I think you, know, you mentioned where he's at in terms of uh, fan graph war and his own team, but if you look at players with at least 100 plate appearances, only Manny, Manny Machado has a higher uh, fan graph war than yep. he does right now. He's the AL's best average at 384, um, the only player beating Mike Trout and Wade Brunkrate a plus 264 to Trout's 223. Um, Grand Slam on Saturday. Um, it's in, you know when you look at him though a lot of the the rate stats when you dive into the you know mm-hmm. the hard hit rate and the sweet spot rate they're up but they're not demonstrably up year over year especially the the hard hit rate it's just up zero point three percent so I think much. this is a guy who is learning around those superstars because that's been the thing with the Angels right is for the longest time they are basically like okay let's accumulate as many superstars as we can and then we'll just fill the rest of the roster with scrubs it's like a, an NBA approach to a dream team, right? You put together, you know, the, the Lakers team that has all these future Hall of Famers on it, and then we'll just fill the, the rest of the roster with some guys that you vaguely have heard of who might be able to log some minutes with us. But if you get one of those guys to take the next step, and they're right now they're getting Taylor Ward to take the next step, we'll see if he has bat- staying power, because you mentioned the batting average on balls in play is a little bit problematic, but if you're consistently hitting balls hard, that's not going to matter. I mean, you, the, the, it's a good you know, the, the law of averages says yeah. ultimately you're going to get hits if you continually hit the ball hard. So um, a, a, a fantastic development for the Angels that they are getting something other than superstar play from superstars. Now, Taylor Ward was a first-round draft pick by the Angels way back in 2015. That's a draft class we know pretty well. It was headlined by Dansby Swanson, number one overall. Then you had Alex Bregman and Brendan Rodgers, the three shortstops at the top. You also had the Braves taking both Colby Allard and Mike Soroka in that draft. In fact, Ward was picked two selections ahead of Mike Soroka. He made it to the big leagues in 2018 and hit 178, then 190, then 277. This is all in 40 games or fewer and then a season ago, he batted 250, hit eight home runs. He has already matched his home run total in a year in which we've been talking about, hey, it's, you know, the, the offenses are down. He came in leading the American League in walks, average, average on base percentage, and slugging, and obviously OPS and OPS plus. So some pretty good work for Taylor Ward. And we're going to stick with the Angels here because they had quite an eventful week. And this, we got a two for one right here. I love a sale. And it starts with some history in Anaheim from Tuesday night for rookie Reed Detmers. Ground ball. Velasquez throws across. He got it! Reed Denver's throws a no-hitter! It's just something I've dreamed of ever since I was a little kid. Um, I didn't think it'd ever happen, but, um, yeah, I don't even know. Um, I probably won't even remember this tomorrow morning. (laughs) (laughs) He may not, but a lot of people are going to remember this for quite some time. But that no-hitter, the second in the majors this season, we'll have more on that in a moment. First for the Angels since 2019, Detmers walked one. He only struck out two batters and needed 108 pitches to get his 27 outs. And would you believe that through five weeks of baseball, the Detmers threw just the third complete game 
of the season. That is from all 30 Major League Baseball clubs. In fact, only three of the 30 teams even have one. He is the third pitcher to be less than two years removed from being drafted and throw no hitter, joining Burt Hooten in 72 and Steve Busby in 1973. I'm sure everybody knows those names. Well, I, I do know one yeah, of the two, them, so I'm batting them, 500. Pull, yeah, pull them from the ether. But, um, man, a 6-3-3 ERA before throwing that no-hitter. And the craziest thing is that may have only been the second coolest thing to happen for the Angels in that game when you think about Anthony Rendon, who had over yeah. 4,500 plate appearances as a right-hander, goes in his left-handed because Brett Phillips is on the mound for the Rays. And position says, player. Uh, position player. Let's see how this thing goes. And he jacks a home run. I mean, I love that the next day Joe Madden made up the lineup and he put Anthony Rendon down as a switch hitter. Hey, they're having fun out there, Joe Madden. I think that's one of the things that his clubs have been known to yep. do, play a little bit loose, but also to play pretty well more times than not. But for Rendon, I think you might want to retire the left-handed swing. You're never going to get any better than that. And he parked one off a 54-mile-an-hour pitch. So good for him for generating his own power, not that it was that uh, altogether shocking. But as we know, complete games are hard to come by. I just mentioned that. I also mentioned that Reed Detmers threw the second no-hitter of 2022. The Mets, Corey, threw the first one, and they used five pitchers to do it back on April 29th. Still a good accomplishment for that group, certainly, but former Mets pitcher, social media star, and now brand-new Angels hurler, Noah Syndergaard, tweeted a clarification of Reed Detmers' accomplishment that read, and I quote, To be clear, I don't think a combined no-hitter is the same as a real one-pitcher no-hitter. Ban the wave, and Mr. Met is a creep. <laughs> so some shots fired on his old team there. Good-natured, maybe, probably, but this is a polarizing topic for some. Where do you land on combined no-hitters? Because we're sitting here on a day where we almost saw another one. I was at uh, Turner Field in 2014 when the Phillies threw a combined no-hitter with Cole Hamels at the top and three relievers combined uh, along with him for that no-no. And to be in the post-game press conference, it just didn't feel like it was that big of a deal. I mean, <laughs> no. it just didn't. It's you different. Know, it, it is very different. And in, in back in way back in, what was that, 1990, uh, I was at Dave Steeb's no-hitter that he threw for the Blue Jays against the Cleveland Indians. Uh, that was a year where it had been the, at the time it was the most no-hitters uh, thrown that season. Um, I remember telling my dad when I got back uh, home that we saw the no-hitter, and he asked me a thought, and I said it was actually really boring. You know, the 12-year-old's going to speak a little bit differently than someone who gets to see that accomplishment now. But I think Noah Syndergaard's right. I mean, it just doesn't feel the same. When one guy can go out there and potentially get through a lineup four times. Three and a quarter. Three and three and a quarter. But when you can go out there and consistently take down the same guys, I yep. just think it just feels different. Because when you can give them a bunch of different looks from a bullpen, you know, it, it just doesn't feel the same. To me, it's, I'm not saying that they all need to have an asterisk next to them, but the, the, the single pitcher no-hitter just continues to be one of the most unfathomable things. I can't, I'm going to not say that word again ever on air. Um, crazy things that you'll ever hear, just because you think one guy could pull that off against a professional lineup is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an accomplishment for the team. Like, throwing a no-hitter is a special thing, but it does feel different when there's one guy who does it, just yeah. for the level of personal accomplishment for that pitcher, because not very many people have done it. But with fewer and fewer complete games, we might see more combined no-hitters. The Braves threw one in 1991 with Kent Merker and Alejandro Pena and Mark Wohlers, and not in that order. Um, I think it was Wohlers and then Pena. Yes. And then the Braves got a no-hitter from Kent Merker in 1994. It's the last no-hitter in Braves franchise history. You brought up Dave Steve, and it's a fun a little factoid about him is that that no-hitter was a long time coming for him because he was more snake-bitten. He lost a perfect game with two outs in the ninth thing in, in 1989. He lost no-hitters with two outs and two strikes in the ninth in back-to-back -back starts in 1998, or excuse me, 1988, and he also lost a no-hit bid to start the ninth inning in 1985. So he just kept flirting and flirting and flirting with a no-hitter, and he finally got it. And let's wrap up 
are three up and three down with this one. Bryce Harper coming off his MVP season in 2021. He's one of the big reasons the Phillies have been on a bit of a hot streak of late because he's been red hot at the plate. But he may not be seeing the outfield for a while because Tess revealed a partially torn UCL in his throwing elbow. So for now, he's going to be DHing. And Joe Girardi said they'll reassess this down the line. But I would say, Corey, that the Phillies fans have to be pretty happy for the universal DH right about now. Absolutely. 171 way to run create a plus out of him. He's gone deep nine times. Um, you know, he's going to have that plasma injection. They're going to have to probably have to take a couple days uh, off after that. The issue, though, with this to me, though, is that you're now asking Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos guys that aren't exactly great no. defensive players to man those corner outfield spots. It's not the premium and optimum look for the Phillies, but you get to keep Bryce Harper in the lineup. And if this was a couple of years ago, we're lamenting the fact that he plays in the National League, so at least we get to see Bryce Harper yep. get on a consistent basis. And the Phillies, most certainly yeah. the happiest of all of this. They do have a club that can hit the ball pretty well, and they're quite obviously a better club when Bryce Harper's in that lineup. So much more to get to here on the show. We'll take our trip around the big leagues when we come back. Size up those NL and AL division battles right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you as we begin our number two here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios as always. Just a reminder, make sure that you're following us on social media. I am at Grant McCauley. That's where you can find me. You can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. You can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And you can find 92.9 The Game at 92.9 The Game. So make sure you get all those follows going if you haven't already. And if you have, then thank you so much for doing so. Let's jump in and go around the big leagues here, Corey, for our National League report for this week. And we'll start in the East, which is the most important race for the Braves. That's the one they want to win first before they go win some other things in October. And that's what they've done the last four years. But the Mets remain the team to beat with just over a month's worth of games in the books. The Phillies are putting some things together. We mentioned Bryce Harper a little dinged up, but he's still able to play. They're the highest-scoring team in the division, by the way, the Phillies are. So the Braves are going to have their work cut out for him because it's not going to be easy to bypass a couple of teams they're looking up at in the standings right now. The Mets have a six-and-a-half game lead over the Braves right now. The Phillies are sitting and will be no worse than second place as the day ends on Sunday as well. So a little bit tougher climb for the Braves than maybe even a year ago. I will say the thing with the Mets last year, and you know we've talked many times about them a year ago, being the team that spent the most time in history in first place only to end the year with a losing record, they, were in, they had a negative run differential for a, long, a large part of last year despite the fact that they were leading the division. Yeah, That's not, not happening case. this time mm-hmm. around. I mean, they're, a, they're at plus 35 right now, and the offense has been – Interestingly, really contact-heavy. They entered the weekend with 54 infield hits, the most of any team by 19. They had the NL's highest contact rate and the fourth lowest swinging strike rate, but their BABIP of 300 is top three, and they're 27th in hard hit rate. So it, you think about it eventually, if you're, if you're not hitting the ball hard yeah. and that batting average and ball in play is going to dip down, is this offense going to be able to continue to, to you know, get guys on base mm-hmm. and move the chain as they've been able to, I think it, it feels like as great as that pitching is, they're, they may need it because I think things are going to catch up with this offense eventually. Yeah, well, Jacob DeGrom has not thrown a pitch in a big league yeah. game for the Braves, or excuse me, for the Mets yet, and he hasn't thrown a pitch in a game, I think, at all, has he at this point, because he was injured back in spring yep, training. Correct. So he hasn't even gotten a chance to go out and start a rehab assignment. So the Mets are still without him. 
but there's still 10 games over 500. We've seen the last 10 games, though, including their loss on Sunday, just 5-5. Five and five. We knew they weren't going to play 700 baseball all season long, but there's nothing wrong with getting off to a hot start. That's something the Braves would very much like to have been able to say. That's something Braves fans would have very much liked to have seen thus far, but that just has not been the case as the Braves head out on this road trip looking to take some steps towards getting back up to 500. Winning a couple series would help, but you know, being able to win a whole bunch of games, get above 500, and not look back is what the Braves would like to start out as. But as of right now, that's just not the case. The Marlins, meanwhile, just behind the Braves in the standings, they've dropped 7 out of 10 and are taking on the Milwaukee Brewers, a club that the Braves are going to be seeing in Monday's action. The Washington Nationals, meanwhile, we knew it was going to be a tough road for them. They're already 12 games under 500 and 11 games back in the standings as they get ready to take on the Marlins in a series that begins on Monday. So not really a bunch of surprises up and down the standings in the National League East based on what we have seen so far this year, but there is still, whether you like it or not, a lot of baseball left to be played, about 125 games to go. Sense of urgency is going to start to crank up as you turn to Memorial Day and you start looking at those standings and thinking, at least for me, that's my first big checkpoint of the year when I look at the standings. I wonder with the Nationals, though, they've lost 16 of their last 21. I mean, you know, we, we obviously, you know, Juan Soto is the reason you're going to watch the Nationals this year. I mean, continues to be awesome. You know, 156 uh, WRC+. plus. Josh Bell is having a, a really yeah, he quietly has. good season that nobody's talking about. He's hitting 66% above league average. He's on a one-year deal. I think there's a very good chance that maybe he ends up getting dealt. But another guy that, you know, we had the potential of getting dealt at the deadline that we talked about before the season was Nelson Cruz. Mm-hmm. And I know he had a key hit uh, for them Saturday night. But I, I wonder if Father Time's finally catching up with this guy at age 41. I mean, he's just a mere 71 weighted run creative plus, eight, 181 average, um, and he has a 191 batting average on balls in play. I mean, the max exit velocity is still where you want it to be, but he has a 7% drop in his hit rate. I just wonder if we've gotten to the point in Nelson Cruz. I mean, look, he, that guy's 41 years old. I mean, you right. know, eventually— Eventually, it's going to catch up with him. And, you know, entering the, the season, going into that team, it, it seemed really weird that he was even in Washington. It just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And it felt like, I know there's a, a, a mutual option for next year, but it felt like, okay, this is the guy that's going to be dealt. But if he's not performing, is somebody going to be in? I mean, there's time for him to do it. But right now, it's to me surprising that we're talking about Nelson Cruz, a guy who's, you know, really had a, 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 a I say late career, but basically a retirement baseball retirement age resurgence here Mm -hmm. uh, is struggling so much. Yeah, and if you look at when he was dealt to the Tampa Bay Rays a year ago, he didn't really perform at that level. Certainly he was at Minnesota where when he was sent over, he was just below 300 through 85 games, had 19 home runs, had a 900-plus OPS. His OPS was 725 with Tampa Bay in 55 games last year and is now down under 600 for the season here in 2022. So maybe this is just kind of a little bit of a carryover. And you mentioned Josh Bell as well. His second half last season, I thought was kind of the beginning of him maybe finding what he had in Pittsburgh in that very good year, about three or four years ago. So we'll see how that all plays out as we look down the National League standings into the Central where we find the Milwaukee Brewers, who are the club that the Braves are going to be facing in a three-game series starting on Monday. They have a three-game lead over the St. Louis Cardinals, who are going to be in action against the San Francisco Giants, that being the Cardinals. Uh, but for the Milwaukee club, it's been kind of, and really for the Central, this past like 10 days or so, win one, lose one, win one, lose one. They haven't really changed the standings altogether that much. And so you see the Brewers, then the Cardinals, then you get the Pirates and the Cubs, who are eight games under 500. The Reds, who are way down there at the bottom of the standings, 13 games out already. You know it's been a tough year for the Reds, but I don't really see, outside of the Cardinals, a really clear 
challenger to the Milwaukee Brewers as they look to repeat in the Central. No, I mean it's obviously it's just the Cardinals, right? I mean, but it, you know, in 16 of their 32 games, they've scored fewer than three runs. In those games, they've lost 11 of 13 and five of seven. But when they've scored at least four, they're 14 and three. They just they've just struggled to be consistent offensively. And on the topic of the Brewers, I mean, let's give some love to Josh Hader. Earlier this week, he became the fastest reliever to 500 strikeouts, doing it in 244 games. Um, you know, just a fantastic start to this guy's career. And then Christian Yelich, we talked about this before uh, off air, sixth player to hit for a cycle three times, and they've all come against the Cincinnati Reds. So Superbly uh, yeah. quirky stat. Yep, absolutely. Um, he joins uh, Bob Musil, Babe Herman, and John Riley, not John C. Riley, and Adrian Beltre and yes. Trey Turner as the only guys to have three career cycles. So, uh, But nobody's catching up to the Brewers. So John C. Riley was instrumental in Billy Chappell's <laughs> perfect game and for love of the game. So you've got to give him some credit there. He's He's been around for some baseball history throughout the, uh, the times. Look at how West, the Padres with their win, they actually did something pretty cool for them. On this Sunday, not cool for the Braves, but they moved ahead of the Los Angeles Dodgers as the Padres have won six out of ten. The Dodgers have lost four in a row as they battle the Phillies on Sunday. They're just five and five in their last ten games, and that's allowed San Diego to jump in and grab a half game lead for the moment as we sit here on a Sunday afternoon. Clayton Kershaw's on the IL. That's uh, a big with story. An SI joint inflammation, which is basically the hip, hip pelvis era. Uh, area. It doesn't an, an anticipate him being a long-term absence, but it's troublesome nonetheless. I mean, he missed the second half of last season with forearm and elbow issues. Obviously, mm-hmm. didn't uh, hit in the postseason. Andrew Haney's also on the IL, and then you've got David Price, who you know has been out of action since April with on the COVID list. Um, they've got a four-man rotation right now. We know how talented they are, but not having Clayton Kershaw in there, uh, you know, it's. I mean, the the Padres being able to move in this position before we've even seen Fernando Tatis Jr. back in a San Diego uniform on the field, uh, this this feels big. Uh, and certainly, you know, not having Kershaw feels less than big uh, for the Dodgers' standpoint. Yeah, it doesn't really help them out. Of course, they've got Walker Bueller. They've got Julio Urias. I mean, both of these guys have thrown pretty well for him. And then you get names that you just don't expect to be all together that great, but just manage to go out and win games, whether it's a Tyler Anderson or a Tony Gonsolin, who, yep. of course, we're familiar with. The Dodgers have Craig Kimbrell closing for him this year. He's locked down five saves in nine appearances, and they've got a bullpen that just comes out, comes right at you, throws strikes, and nobody, in fact, throws more strikes than Dodgers pitching as they, I believe, lead all of baseball in the fewest walks. Uh, on the season and per nine innings. So a couple of stats that you really like to see. A whole bunch of strikeouts and not very many walks. A lot of clubs would like to be in that boat. And I know that the wild card is not really something we want to talk about a whole lot, but when you look at the standings come around Memorial Day, you start to get an idea of what things look like in that wild card race. But remember, it's a dog pile, and you got to climb over a whole bunch of other teams if you want to find your way across the goal line and grab one of those spots. Braves are three games out of a wild card spot right now. They would be trailing the Philadelphia Phillies, among other teams. And then you also have the wild card, or excuse me, just the wild west in general, top to bottom. We're talking about the Padres, then the Dodgers, then the San Francisco Giants, who are only a game out uh, as we sit here right now. And then the Arizona Diamondbacks and Colorado Rockies are both over 500. So those are all clubs that have a chance to either win that division or grab one of these wild card spots. And even with expanded playoffs, I mean, this is not a shoe in when you have to start looking at every other team in your league to try to punch your ticket to October. Yeah, and it feels like the West is going to end up, you know, you got four it looks teams like it right there. now. I mean, man, the, the Giants plus 42 have the NL's second best run differential behind the Dodgers. 
Um, you know, after a five-game losing streak, they've won five straight. I don't think we talk enough about that offense. They had the fourth most runs scored, eight players with at least 30 plate appearances that are hitting above league average. It's just like last year. They don't have that one guy that you think, okay, that's who I'm worried about in that lineup. They just all contribute. Um, they've got the game's second best on base percentage. They're mid-level and slug with seventh in homers. It truly is some of the parts with uh, Gabe Kapler's crew. And then the Diamondbacks, man, I mean, this pitching staff has been fantastic. A collective, you know, just around 2-4 ERA. Um, Zach Gallen has the league's second best ERA with a minimum of 30 innings. Merrill Kelly has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Madison Bumgarner has, you know, just been lights out. Um, it's it's crazy considering that they've played the Mets six times, the Astros, Dodgers, Padres, and Rockies. Uh, that they're in the position that they're in. I mean, they've 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 played some tough teams. Yeah, and they've they've pitched really really well. They have, and and really, I mean, there were so many question marks around the Arizona Diamondbacks and around the Colorado Rockies, for that matter, who have also been at around or above 500 all season long, and they've certainly gotten their fair share of criticism for how they've run their franchise, specifically with some of their keystone, you know, big-name players, trading Nolan Arenado, letting Trevor Story leave. They did go out and sign Chris Bryant, and they have been able to, you know, string some things together this year and put together a winning record. But, yeah, I mean, just looking overall at this Arizona Diamondbacks club, I think pitching is certainly the story, and the pitching doesn't get much better than what we've seen from Zach Gallen. This was a guy that had all the talent in the world, kind of exploded on the scene. You thought, hey, he's going to be a guy. For Arizona, maybe for a little while here, there was that trade where they got him from the Marlins for Jazz Chisholm. Yep. A lot of people questioned that trade when they saw the early returns on Zach Gallon. Then he got hurt, and all of a sudden Chisholm looks like he's going to be a guy for Miami for a while. But Gallon has recaptured the magic this year for sure. I love that Jazz Chisholm said he wanted to hit a homer off of Zach Gallon. I heard uh, Zach Gallon earlier this week on uh, MLB Network Radio Saying that he, you know, he thinks it's, he, he's all for it, man. He's like, if I, I love that you want to get amped up about, you know, the team that traded you yeah. away and the guy that, you know, that you were traded for that's having some success. So um, I absolutely love that. And by the way, on the Rockies, they just signed a, a name all too familiar to Braves country and Jose Urena. Um, so Urania, yeah, Urania, what you know, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. He likes to call him daddy. So yeah, that's well, I think well. we definitely know that. Uh, but yeah, certainly this is a team that generates a lot of ground balls. He does that. He doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. So potentially could fit uh, well there. And also he, you know, we know he likes to give up home runs, so he could be doing that in Colorado as well. Yeah, we'll just see how upset he is after each and every one of those home runs. But yeah, to go back to Zach Gallon, six starts this year, ERA just over one. 35 strikeouts, five walks, opponents hitting 150 against him. So basically, he's done everything he needs to control, and hitters have not figured out uh, how to solve that mystery yet. He and Merrill Kelly making quite a one-two punch, and then you do have Madison Bumgarner in there as well. So really a kind of a three-headed monster in that rotation, and they've had a pretty good bullpen. So Arizona has figured out some things, and are they're out in the desert, but they're not wandering anymore, or at least they're wandering in the right direction. That seems to be the way it looks overall. But again, in the standings for the three divisions thus far, it's the Mets sitting on a five-game lead over the Philadelphia Phillies, pending the action of Sunday. Milwaukee Brewers with a three-game cushion on the Cardinals and the San Diego Padres, at least for the moment on Sunday, have their time in the sun as they have moved ahead of the Los Angeles Dodgers, pending the outcome of Sunday's action. When we come back, we will take a look at what's going on in the American League as we continue our trip around the big leagues. This is From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you. 
We appreciate you joining us here on a Sunday evening as we talk about what's been going on with the Atlanta Braves and we continue, of course, our look at what's happening around the big leagues as well. If you enjoy what you've been finding here on From the Diamond, then I invite you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. You can also find us on a little show, Corey, that we like to call Battery Power, which is part of SB Nation and thus named Battery Power. That's where you can find it as well. Battery Power SBN and, of course, Battery Power TV. That's the place we like to set up shop throughout the week as well. And we found ourselves a pretty interesting run early on in the season and a pretty good episode we're coming off of this past week. Yeah, I mean, it was fun. We got to uh, chat up uh, Ben Verlander, uh, obviously the, the brother of Justin Verlander, uh, MLB analyst for Fox Sports, host of the Flippin' Bats pod. So he kind of gave his his breakdown of the Braves, what he's seen before and after Acuna's uh, stint on the, the IL to start the year, what he loves about that pitching staff. So give it a listen. I mean, check it out on the Battery Power YouTube channels. It was a fun conversation with him. It was, and he was one of the guys that was really keying in, as I think you and I have been as well. It's like when Charlie Morton figures yeah. this out, he's going to – you know, unlock something and it's going to look like it used to. And Charlie certainly went out and did that over the weekend against the Padres, but the praise coming up on the wrong side of the score and extra innings on Sunday and losing that series two out of three before going out on the road, not part of the Braves plan, but yeah, be sure to check out battery power as well. Let's check out the American league East standings for the time being. It is the New York Yankees who have been, I think beating up on a schedule that's been a little bit favorable to them. And they've been doing it by succeeding in all phases of the game. They're 25-9 and nine as they uh, check in on Sunday with a 735 winning percentage best in all of baseball, a four-and-a-half game lead over the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League East, and the only team that has not allowed 100 total runs yet on the season. And that leads, of course, to a nice big run differential that's also the best in baseball and the only positive run differential in the entire American League East. That's a little bit surprising. I can't wait until they get to this stretch a little bit later in the month where they play four games against the Rays and then three against the Angels. Those three games against the Angels, uh, May 31st and June 1st and 2nd, are going to be an absolute blast. Um, They are hitting on all cylinders, figuratively and literally. The offense ridiculous. Aaron Judge at over 200 way to run create a plus with 11 bombs. Giancarlo Stanton is 63% above league average. Um, but man, let's let's talk about the game's best bullpen to this point. A two-one Fangraph war. Michael King is striking out twelve-three per nine. Clay Holmes has a 055 ERA. They have seven relievers with at least eleven innings, and five of them have an ERA of one six four or lower. And you've got Aroldis Chapman, who after an abysmal twenty twenty-one with a three three six ERA, his worst since. 2011 in Cincinnati, before he even became a full-time closer, has rebounded nicely. So just getting the job done. You know, it's kind of amazing, too, when you look at how successful a guy's been that an ERA still below 3.5 could be abysmal. And there's a lot of relievers out there saying, man, I'd I'd take 10 years of that, much less 10 years of dominating the way Chapman has. But, yeah, he's been a big reason for them. But the bullpen has been built very well around him. And then there's just those two titans that they've got there in the outfield, or DH if you prefer, in Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. They've had some big moments individually. Stanton hitting the home runs that the Yankees are paying him for. I found it fascinating. He's got 36 hits this year, 10 home runs, not surprising. Only two doubles. So he's either hitting a home run or a single just about every time out there. The Yankees will take all those home runs as he's hitting 290 this year, leading the club and runs knocked in. So for all the old-school statisticians, those runs play as well, and those stats play and the Yankees have uh, certainly liked what they've seen from from both Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. And I think maybe the most important stat for both those guys, they're playing every day. And that's been a big question for the success of the Yankees. They haven't even played in Boston yet. You think about him getting some doubles How is that in Boston. Possible? Well, I, 
I mean, they they started the season against the Red Sox, but they don't actually go to Boston okay. uh, until July. So I mean, it's uh, you know you got to go July seventh through the tenth before they they make a trip to Fenway. So it's a very quirky. Yeah, schedule. it is. He's gonna bash some doubles off the the Green Monster. I would imagine. In Maybe that that's game. where he'll pick him up. He has that's two right. doubles through thirty two games. That's a pretty uh, low standard. If you're on pace for fifty home runs and ten doubles in a season. That would be one of the most bizarre stat lines I think I've ever seen. Meanwhile, there are other teams playing in the American League East. We're going to talk about them. One of them is the Tampa Bay Rays. You mentioned them uh, for this season. I mean, they're just kind of doing Rays-type things, but the Yankees have just managed to get out to a little bit better of a start than the Tampa Bay Club. But they're playing good baseball at home. They're playing even better away from Tropicana Field. That, I think, is a key to their success. But then there's what I feel like is just kind of a sleeping giant or a dark horse in the American League East, and that is the Toronto Blue Jays. They have yet to click on anything close to all cylinders the way the Yankees have. They find themselves seven and a half games out of first place in the AL East as we wrap up the second full week of of the month of May. They've lost seven out of ten. Their run differential is completely and totally at the very least, the opposite of what I thought it would be. They have an offense that, much like many other teams in baseball this year, has not been able to find a way to get going the way we expected based on what we saw from the 2021 Blue Jays. So with the Rays, the offense is top 10 in WRC+, plus, but they've scored one run or no runs in three of the past seven games, including that no-hitter uh, at the hands of the Angels' Reed Detmers. And all that, and Wander Franco has struggled. He's you know one for his last 20 Manuel Margot's coming off an AL Player of the Week uh, performance. Uh, he's been fantastic, but um, the last couple of weeks, I just think their offense has, has largely been in a rut. They did get a win on a 3 win over the Blue Jays on Sunday. And speaking of the Jays, I mean, their offensive struggles, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman, Laura Scurriel, Alejandro Kirk, those guys are struggling. I mean, they just – Alex Manoa has been one of the best games uh, – the game's best starting pitchers to this point. They did just get Hinjin uh, Ryu back. But they've just, they just they haven't been able to put it all together. And you just think when you've got Vlad Guerrero Jr. and George Springer, who just came back on Sunday, that eventually they're going to be able to put something together. But I just wonder, are they going to get to the point where the, the, the hill's going to be too big for them to climb? Yeah. You know, that's the situation I think you worry about. The lowest run differential of any team below 500. Um, the, the starting pitching is going to get a boost here. But, man, I, that offense absolutely has to pick up. And it feels like they're kind of teetering in the same way that the Braves are teetering in that a club in their division from New York, no less, has gotten <laughs> off to a very hot start and has been able to get up six, six and a half, seven games at times this year already in the first couple of, well, not even a couple of months, in the first, let's call it six weeks at most at this point. Really, I think it's closer to five. But uh, that aside, I mean, they do have some good starting pitching, the Blue Jays do, but it has been offensively quite a quandary for them this year. George Springer's been hurt some. Uh, here and there, they've also had, I mean, Matt Chapman's come over from the Athletics, and his rather mercurial bat came over with his platinum glove at mm-hmm. third base. I mean, he's a great defender, but you know, batting well below 200 with an OPS just over 600. Yeah, Bo Bichette's batting under 240, only three home runs this year. Whole bunch of strikeouts for him. I think he's leading their club and not walking altogether that much. That's just kind of the style of his game. He's an aggressive hitter. And then Vlad Guerrero has played 34 games this year. He only has 11 extra base hits. I find that to be surprising. He's tied for the club lead in home runs, but I don't know. I mean, I hate to bring it back to all of this, but with offenses struggling across baseball, you look at a team that should be and has shown itself to be quite a murderer's row of its own as they try to chase down the Yankees. Things have just not cooperated with the Blue Jays, and some of them may not be of their own design. It's a top 10 pitching staff overall, and I think the fact that you, I mean, you almost have to look at it and say, what more could these guys even do? I mean, what more could they 
put into this team to feel like they could take, they could really make a push. They have all the pieces. They just are literally waiting for them to come together. They only have three guys right now who are hitting at or above league average. They yep. just have not gotten it done with some pieces that, you know, if you're playing MLB The Show, there's a lot of these guys that you know you're putting together into your lineup there on the you yeah. know, your your uh, you know diamond cards and all that fun stuff. There's a lot of these names popping up in there, and they're just not performing together. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people in their personal card collections as well <laughs> might have true. a few Vlad Guerrero's put away after what he did last year. It's not all on him. I mean, it's going to take yeah. the whole team to get going, but that's kind of how it's looking in the American League East. Meanwhile, the Central, the Minnesota Twins, I think have surprised a lot of folks. They haven't necessarily lit the world on fire the last week and a half, but Hey, they played 500 ball, and they still hold a three-game lead over the Chicago White Sox, who I think it would be pretty safe to say are a little bit of a disappointment this year and a, a little bit of a confusing disappointment as well. Uh, the White Sox, below 500, run differential, negative 30. I mean, they have not scored very many runs, and they have let up well more than that, and that obviously can lead you to be a below 500 club. But it feels like the talent is there, but for whatever reason, the White Sox can't seem to get it going either. They've been uh, outscored by the Yankees in this series 30-12. to 12. That'll ruin a run differential. Yeah, it will. I mean, they've been in a, a team of extreme spurts. They went on a six-game winning streak, then they lost eight straight. I mean, and it's an incomplete team. I mean, Yohan Moncada just got back in the yeah. lineup. Loy Jimenez, who tore his hamstring on April 23rd, is recovering quickly, but they're not trying to rush him back. They still don't have Lance Lynn, a target date. I mean, maybe June, early June. Yeah, but that's a big you know, loss. Yeah, it, it is a big loss. I mean— it's just scary, though, for you know, the, for them to think about the fact that you know the the Twins are just you know running away with things. I mean, the White Sox are going to get better than a group that's currently 25th in Fangraph WAR offensively and 14th in the starting staff. But are the Twins going to pull away? And we talked about this with the Astros. Carlos Correa is on the 10-day IL with a bruised right uh, middle finger. He can come back as early this week, but in, in his absence. Royce Lewis, the top 100 prospect, number one in the twin system, all he's done in his first call-up is hit a grand slam on his first home run of his career. Um, it's just been a handful of games, but an OPS near 800. Um, he also has the hardest-hit ball of any Twins player this season at 114. That wasn't even the grand slam against the Indians. I guess replacing Carlos Correa is the ticket to having a really, really good run for young shortstops. Yeah, I guess it just gives you that little extra push. And one of the big stories around the Minnesota Twins every single year is the health of Byron yep. Buxton. He has gone through some stuff this year as well, but this guy has 11 home runs in 23 games. He has an OPS above 1,000, and he plays premium defense in center field. If they could have him out there just for 140 games, I mean, he may not have had the statistical success of, say, Eric Davis with the Cincinnati Reds, in the 1980s in terms of the overall offensive impact, but he's got that kind of, I think, game-changing talent. Oh, yeah. He just hasn't been able to go out there and play as much as he would like. And and for Davis, his career kind of derailed. Once it got into the 1990s, he really couldn't find himself healthy. Then had a little bit of a renaissance there for a, a little bit in the mid-90s, but I always ask what if, and I hate to be thinking about Byron Buxton still in his 20s and saying, man, one of the great what-if players right here. What if Byron Buxton were healthy playing 150-plus games every year? I think we'd be talking about him as one of the game's very, very best players. But right now, the Minnesota Twins sitting in the driver's seat where they want to be. White Sox and the Indians, or excuse me, the Guardians. I'll put one <laughs> in, the, uh, in the jar there for making that mistake. The Guardians and then the, uh, the Royals and the Tigers are both well below 500 non-factors in that race. We go out west, Houston. If you get an 11-game winning streak, you ought to be winning the, uh, the division at this point, and they are. They have moved ahead of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim of Orange County, California. And then you have an underperforming Mariners team, and not altogether too surprising to see that Oakland and Texas are kind of taking their lumps. 
Home run number 100 for Shohei Otani. He joins Hideki Matsui and Ichiro Suzuki is the only Japanese-born players to reach that number. Matsui at 175 overall. Ichiro has 117, so Shohei is absolutely coming for them. Um, we talked about it with the Astros, uh, Jeremy Pena, and the revelation he's been, again, mm-hmm. as a Carlos Correa replacement. Um, the Mariners, man, they just optioned uh, – Jared Kelenic, yeah. the former sixth overall pick, top prospect. He just has yet to produce at the big league level, hit 140 with a 510 OPS. And then you think about what they did this offseason. Among players who have appeared in every game this season, they have four players in the lowest 44 in OPS. Julio Rodriguez, who's their big prospect, so I'm kind of giving him a pass there as he kind of just works his way through the majors. Mm-hmm. But Jesse Winker, Adam Frazier, who's been a key piece for them, you know, who's just uh, falling flat. Eugenio Suarez, he's not performing. So Winker and Suarez, those those guys that they got via trade with the Reds are just, I mean, they're just not getting it done. They've been a really frustrating team. I, I thought they were going to be able to put together a resume that was going to have them in the mix to be able to, you know, think about, you know, them getting into a into the uh, the postseason. But it's just not happening. And no. despite the fact that they have so much talent, there, I think they've just been as much as the Rangers have been a frustrating team for them that go out and get Corey Seager and get Marcus uh, Simeon. Mm-hmm. I think the Mariners have been more frustrating to watch just because they just have so much talent. They do, and really, you're looking at the players that are kind of leading the charge for the Mariners this year. You're talking about Ty France and J.P. Crawford. I yeah. don't think those were the names that Mariners— I mean, you'll take all the contributions from everybody you can get, but Mitch Hanniger has not been out there a lot. He hasn't really made an impact yet. Kelnick has probably got to be one of the most challenging uh, quandaries that the Mariners find themselves in because the talent is there. He's going to go back down to AAA, and I would say he's going to go down there and hit. But when he comes back to the big leagues, you can't strike out at a 40-plus percent rate and not be able to find your way on base to the degree that he has. I really thought maybe he was turning the corner in the second half or final six or seven weeks of the season in 2021, but he's come right back out here and ended up in the same very you know unproductive boat that he was in to start his big league career. I will say, though, that I feel like the Mets uh, still got the raw end of that deal. You know, when you think about the well, they had to eat the Cano contract. They did had to eat the Cano contract. They got in with Diaz, who's been a key contributor for them. He's finally found his footing in New York. But mm-hmm. I, th- I think the fact that you didn't have to deal with everything that came with Robinson Cano, I think the Mariners will still take Kellenic in the in the minors over that. Yeah, and there is still time for him to figure it out. He's an extremely young yeah. player. He's just had to take some serious lumps in the first, I don't know, twelve or so months of his big league time. I mean, he doesn't even have a full season's worth of big league time in just yet. But Kellenic optioned. And that's probably one of the more recent disappointments for the Mariners. But big picture American League, you got the Yankees on top in the Central, Twins on, or excuse me, Yankees on top in the East, the Twins on top in the Central, and then the Houston Astros, thanks to their big winning streak, are winning out West. When we come back, we'll get our focus back on the Atlanta Braves. I'm sure a lot of you are interested to hear what's ahead for them. We'll tell you all about this road trip as they embark on that beginning on Monday. And we will have much more right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond as we are in our home stretch. No extra innings for us today. Extra innings for the Braves, not kind on Sunday as they lost by a 7-3 score to the Padres. We talked a little bit about that. We're going to get you set for what's coming up on this uh, road trip for this week ahead for the Braves. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that you'll check out the podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcast. Just search for From the Diamond there. Let's take a look, Corey, at what's ahead for the Braves this week. They're going to have a tough test, I think, especially starting out with three games against the Brewers, the top team in the NL Central. The good news, maybe, is that the Braves have seen them recently, so they have a 
pretty good handle on what to expect from the Brewers. It's not one of those things where you see some guys in April and you don't see them again until August or September. At least they've got a little bit of recency on their side. And, oh, by the way, they won a series against the Brewers, and they did so, I think, pretty convincingly. Yeah, it continues to be the only series win they have against a team uh, with a winning record. But, yeah. again, they've, they've got some uh, experience of late against them. Um, they're going to end up seeing some really strong pitching again in this matchup. You're going to have Freddie Peralta, who they're going to have to face on Monday with Ian Anderson getting the ball. Uh, Adrian Hauser, who has a you know, 3.86 ERA, gets a start on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, you've got the, na- the reigning National League Cy Young Award winner and Corbin Burns. So it, it does not get easy. But, you know, you got Ian Anderson going on Monday against Peralta again. You've got Freed uh, matching up with Burns, which is going to be absolutely fantastic in that Wednesday matchup. I'm going to be really interested to see how they approach Tuesday. Uh, you know, do they do they go into this with the kind of bullpen approach that we've seen in the past? Is Jesse Chavez go out there and then end up, or do they go and do what we talked about a week ago, which is let's give the ball to Spencer Strider and see what this guy is able to do? Yeah, and they kind of leaned on Strider a little bit. I feel like in this past week yeah. in the relief role because Tyler Matzik was clearly not right and was I think trying to work through some stuff. I think they wanted to stay away from him for a few days, and having Strider does help out in that regard. But while they have kind of teased using him as a reliever, particularly when they lost Luke Jackson. I thought maybe this was going to be something that this kind of an arm and a short burst, why wouldn't you want to have this be one of the weapons that you have in the bullpen? But with so many question marks in the rotation, with Waskari Noah continuing to struggle, with nobody else really stepping in and stepping up, I mean, Bryce Elder got a little bit of a look, but that really didn't provide the long-term answer for the Braves either. I think you just keep coming back if you're I mean, me, you, <laughs> many Braves fans out there that just kind of think, man, I'd like to see more Spencer Strider and even if he's not able to be built up to throw five or six or more innings, getting four quality innings from him the way that he's shown a couple of times that he's capable of giving you at least multiple innings, that has to be worth giving the full audition to. So why not go to him right out of the gate? I agree with it. And I think, you know, you, you if you're able to get a run out of him, you know, it's all to your benefit just to, to let him go. I mean, you're, it, with this game, it, it, this talking about the Tuesday game, you're going to get a day off baked in here as well, and he's pitched you know one inning uh, since the sixth. You know he went out for you know, for uh, for one inning against the Padres on uh, on Friday. So I think you can utilize him uh, in this way and see what you're able to get and see if if the success that he's shown you through these multiple inning performances, if he can get a little bit more out of it. I mean I think he's a guy who understands that it doesn't always have to be that you know that max effort. Certainly he can hit triple digits, but I think he's shown you that he can live in that high ninety range without mm-hmm. you know always pushing the limit and working that slider. And I think. I think it's time. You know, we talked about it a week ago. I think it's time to see if you can lean on him in this capacity because there's just not a lot of options when you start thinking about that fifth guy until, and I preface, you know, with fingers crossed that Mike Soroka right. ultimately gets back in the mix. Yeah, and that clearly the Braves would love to have that be the scenario for them that Soroka is able to come back and take one of those spots. But keeping in mind that when he does come back, he'll be about two years removed from starting a major league game. So how much can you lean on him and how soon can you do that? I think are the questions the Braves will be looking to ask themselves then. Before we get to Tuesday where the Braves do have to figure out their starting pitcher, they haven't named one, and Spencer Strider is one of the candidates. And if an opener happens to come out there before he does and he throws the bulk of the innings, then I guess that's kind of a start and we'll call it maybe kind of a step in the direction that uh, could be what the Braves are going to do for a while. But uh, we'll put that aside for a moment because before you get to Tuesday, you got to play Monday. You mentioned Freddie Peralta is going to be on the mound for the Brewers. He was one of their top starters a year ago, has struggled a little bit this year, ERA a little bit higher than I think you'd expect, having seen what Freddie Peralta did for them a season ago. But Ian Anderson, meanwhile, is 3-1 and one now, and after getting knocked around in his first start, really with a whole bunch of walks and 
uh, just getting chased in the third inning. Ian has completed five or more innings in each of his subsequent five starts and has an ERA under three. His fielding independent pitching, though, is up approaching five. So all is not necessarily as rosy as that ERA looks, but I think Ian's been taking steps in the right direction. There have just been a couple outings here or there where maybe just not as aggressive as he's needed to be early on, but something he's looked to correct over his past at least two or three starts. Yeah, without question. I think when you look at that Mets that Mets start, uh, you know, it's one strikeout in that game, but he just holds that offense, which, you know, at the time was the best offense in baseball to one run over five and a third. I think I think you're just kind of waiting for him to still just to go deep into a game, right? right. I mean, he hasn't gone past the sixth. Um, I think that's that's been the question with him from my end is is when is he going to put together that that start that we look at and just as complete as complete domination. I mean, certainly again, you know, having the success he had against that Mets team uh, is more than meaningful. But I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what he what he does against an offense that certainly has some capabilities here in the Brewers. And we talked about Yelich earlier in the show and mm-hmm. how the resurgence he's had this season. Um, there's some dangerous pieces in that Milwaukee lineup, yeah. so I'm going to be interested to see how he handles it. And we've seen some of those recently, yep. so we kind of know where those are. I mean, Ian can game plan a little bit as he, you know, was out there. Uh, no, he missed the Milwaukee. He did miss uh, it, yeah. The Milwaukee club, excuse me. So it'll be his first look at them. He got the start against Boston. That's right. So as you look at what he's done against a club that at least he's seen some recently, maybe that'll help a little bit for the game planning because of that recency. But the big thing that you look at with him is that the walks are up this year. The strikeouts are down. Walks up uh, just over one walk per nine. He's walking four and a, 4.8 batters per nine. And again, the first start certainly fuels that to be a little bit worse in a small sample size of 30 innings, but only 6.6 strikeouts per nine. That's, I don't want to say alarming, but that's something that's going to have to change. He struck out nearly nine batters per nine innings a year ago, and that even felt like it was a little bit low at times where he would go a few starts or a couple of starts where he just wouldn't have the strikeout total that you would expect, not getting the swings and misses on the changeup. But um the hit rate right about where it was a year ago, but walks will certainly be a problem if you don't miss bats. Does it bother you at all to know that the changeup that guys are hitting 231 against it with a 234 expected batting average and a year ago we're talking about that being under 200? I mean, is it our guys? It's a change, is, yeah. yeah it's a are, difference. Is the, is the book out on the, the Ian Anderson changeup a little bit different than it was a year ago? I think the, the longer that you are the same player, and it, because baseball is that constant game of adjustments, the longer that you go, and this, look, you don't need to get away from the changeup. It's a plus pitch. It's his best pitch. It's his biggest weapon. But what other things is he doing to keep guys off of that? Yeah. I think that's why, and I said this earlier about Charlie Morton, they need, needed the curveball for the swings and misses. I feel like Ian maybe needs to establish the breaking ball a bit more just to give hitters something else to think about because you can throw the changeup a lot. I don't think you need to just like cut its usage by 20 or 30% or anything crazy like that and then go purely to leaning on a breaking ball. If you feel like it's your third best pitch, why are you throwing that one and not one of your two best pitches? I guess that's just uh, kind of some of the, the mental chess match that a pitcher has to deal with when you navigate a lineup multiple times. But, yeah, to your point, uh, I feel like the changeup hasn't been as effective this year, but it may be because of other things that just haven't, had hitters enough off balance to really not know what to do with his changeup or not be as prepared for it as they have been this year. Yeah, I mean, I'll buy that. So back in 2020, he had a 104 average against with that pitch. Last season, it was 197, as I mentioned. Yeah. This year, it's at 231. Um, I mean, the the whiff rate is still crazy with it, right? It's still at nearly 40%. Um, last year that was at three uh, thirty four point nine. So he's still, and it's a near twenty percent put away rate for mm-hmm. him on that pitch. It's just when guys are getting to it, 
They're doing damage. They're doing damage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that, I think, has been a little bit of the difference. So you've got this series against the Brewers, starting with Ian Anderson and Freddie Peralta. We talked a little bit about what the plan might be with Spencer Strider, I'm imagining, being a focal point of that plan on Tuesday as Adrian Hauser, the righty for the Brewers, is on the mound. Then you get that marquee matchup again that we did get in the Brewers series. I am remembering this one right. <laughs> it was Max Fried against Corbin Burns in that one, and that, I think, is one of those that you just want to circle and say, all right, let's see what these guys are able to do because you got Max on the mound, but you got a big, a tall task in Corbin Burns as well. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously anytime, you know, you're facing a guy like Burns and the Braves have, you know, gotten a, a lot of looks at him. You think about, you know, the the postseason against him as well in that Brewers club in the NLDS, and they've had success against him. Um, you know, I, 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 to me, I, I think, you know, Max's ability to match him toe-to-toe is maybe the, the best part of this is that you know, you know, he's going to go out there. You know, you're getting a guy who is able to elevate his game now in these games. I mean, we, you, we talked before on Battery Power TV about when you look at his rates against teams with winning records going back to 2020, he's the best ERA in baseball yeah. uh, in terms of pitchers in those big matchups like that. So, And guys on the Braves team have had success against Corbin Burns. I mean, Marcelo Zuna showed you some stuff over the weekend. He had hits in uh, his last three games. you got to go back to you know mid-April to find the last time that he had three hits in, in, uh, hits in three consecutive games. He's got an over 1,100 OPS against uh, Corbin Burns. Ozzie Albee's over 1,200. Dansby Swanson over, over 2,000 OPS. Acuna, if he gets back in this series, which we're expecting he does, over 1,800. A lot of guys have found success in moments against Corbin Burns, and that's going to be uh, – integral, especially if Max Fried is locked in. Well, and let's talk about the, I don't even know if it's an elephant in the room. It's pretty obvious when you walk in there, though. There might as well be a poster on the door before you even go in. Is Ronald Acuna Jr. going to be playing in this series? That's a question the Braves are going to have to find the answer to. They were very cautious with him. He got the MRI, you know, the the groin, I don't know if they call it a strain or just some general soreness or whatever yeah. it is. You know, that's had them being cautious. And I think that overcompensating on his surgically repaired knee, that's a valid thing to be cautious about. They don't want to put him on the injured list because you don't want to sign up for a week and a half or more off for Ronald Acuna Jr. if you don't particularly need it. But this is a different club when he's out there. It's the most obvious thing I'm going to say on the show, and I'll say it every single day and every single time that I need to, unless or until he's playing every single day. It does make a difference. And in this kind of series against a first-place club like the Brewers, you want to have all your weapons, all your pieces out there, and Acuna – I mean, that's that's the biggest piece there for the Braves. Looking at Max Fried, as we talked a little bit about him matching up with Corbin Burns and the success I think the Braves have found in moments against Corbin Burns. Last time out for Freed against his old club, against the Padres, a club he'd really dominated nine hits and four earned runs allowed. That really broke up a nice string of five consecutive starts for Freed in which he was just locked in. Uh, really dominant, 31 and a third innings, 30 punch outs, only one walk over that stretch. He was really, really looking good and under 200 for the opponent's average, under 500 for the opponent's OPS during that string. It's not that the Padres knocked him around too altogether much, but they were able to have a little bit more success than anybody had against Max Fried since way back on opening day when the Cincinnati Reds were able to get to him for five earned runs. So not too many of those kind of starts for Freed, and I would imagine that not much has changed from his approach from prior to this Padres start where he looked pretty good in, in that time. It just I think the Padres were opportunistic in that one. Yeah, I, I wonder with Freed, you know, he just gets so amped up seemingly for that Padres uh, matchups. You know, I don't know if gotta he's stick got it to like, the old yeah, club. I don't know if he's got like an AJ Preller or uh, you know uh, Justin Upton voodoo doll that he's got worked in the mix or a little picture you know on the, the middle of his dartboard. But uh, man, he gets fired up for those matchups against the team that, that traded him away and. and 
flipping to him against the Brewers. I mean, a collective 553 OPS the Brewers have against Max Freed. And, um, you know, they've struck out 20 times uh, with a mere seven walks against him. So uh, I think if you're if you're of the betting sort and you're looking for a guy that could potentially have a big game uh, against the Brewers in this series, I think Max Freed is a, is a pretty good lockdown guy to take in it. Yeah, he got you Darvish in his last start, so he's going to be matching up with another st- Top yeah. starting pitcher, and that's just kind of the way that things have gone quite a bit for Max Freed. That's the guy that you want against the other team's ace. He's the guy that you want on the hill, and these are going to be the kind of uh, matchups that he's going to draw more times than not. Let's spend a couple seconds here, or more than a couple seconds, but not quite a couple minutes on the Miami Marlins. They are a team that I think is much improved. There's no love loss between the Braves and the Marlins. Atlanta is heading down to Miami. If Ronald Acuna Jr. is playing, that could be appointment television <laughs> oh, yeah. because of the, again, lack of love loss between these two clubs. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think from a, a pitching standpoint in this matchup, I mean, you're, you're looking at, you know, Trevor Rogers and then uh, Elzar Hernandez, you know, as the potential guys that they'll be facing in this one, you know, and then they would, uh, at least for now, turn it over to Cody Poteet in that final game uh, in the weekend. So I think this is shaping itself up to be a, a, an opportunity for the Braves to open things up offensively. We know what the Marlins are predicated on, right? I mean, it's it's not... A, you know, a mental gymnastics here uh, for us to look at this team. I, I will say with them, though, we talked about this off air. Jorge Soler is just really struggling right now. 81 WRC plus and a 180 average, a 614 OPS, barrel rate, hard hit rate. All those are down. The hard hit rate's down 6.5%, swinging more out of the zone. A lot like Marcelo Zuno, where you think he's pressing a little bit, it's absolutely showing with Jorge Soler. So the Braves are going to welcome back, you know, to get to see a guy that was a big uh, piece for them last postseason, but he is absolutely struggling for the Marlins. Yeah, he certainly has been, and I'm guessing that it just, as you look at these two clubs, that these are going to be important games because they're interdivisional games and that the club like the Marlins, who is trying to be on the rise, will take great pride in knocking around a team like the Braves that just won the World Series and is trying to get its footing. So these are pivotal games, and as we've said many times about the games in April, we'll say them again about the ones in May, they, these wins and losses are just as important as the ones you're trying to get down the stretch. In fact, they can have you in a totally different space by the time you get to late in the season where the games, of course, are as big as they're going to get. And I always wonder those matchups, you know, against those teams that while you know them and you know them well and where they're at in the standings may not, you know, be, be scaring anybody, how dangerous those matchups seem to be because you got to play them, you know, six times in a 10-game in a, a span because you've got a four-game series with the Phillies you know, matched around that. Then you've got the Diamondbacks, who we've been talking about looming. You've got the Rockies, who have played above the way that anybody thought they were going to. So it, you're going to be in a in an interesting stretch here. You've yep. got to get it done against a team that everyone on paper says you should be taking down. Well, that's the lineup for the Braves, or the matchups for the Braves on this series. They'll get three against the Milwaukee Brewers on the road, then they'll have a day off and get three against the Miami Marlins as well. So it'll be fun to see. Hopefully, if the Braves are able to do a little bit to Milwaukee, what they did the last time that those two teams matched up. That's what's ahead for the Braves in this upcoming week, and that's going to do it for this episode of From the Diamond. For Corey McCartney, for Dom Shirosky, here in the 92.9 The Game studios, the Kia studios, we appreciate you joining us, and we look forward to catching you next Sunday right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.